your views, your values. This is WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I said it's all right. Hello. And welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with experts on sustainable issues. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the wonderful Annie Ellis. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Annie. Um, in my neighborhood, well, the neighborhood next to me, we have sweeps. You know, sweeps where people can put out their garbage and their trash. Oh, yeah, like those uh, every six months or something yeah. like that. Clean sweeps, that's what they call it, yes. clean sweeps. And I went around the neighborhood and I found some gems today. <laughs> you went uh, trash diving? Yeah, I that's got... That's awesome. <laughs> I got a four-foot-long... It was like a rabbit cage, uh-huh. but the base of it holds water, and I'm going to grow my carnivorous plants oh, in so it. that's perfect for you. And then I found a plastic stool, which I'm going to put plants on. Uh-huh. And then I found a five-foot-tall plastic skeleton. Oh, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to put, are you going to put <laughs> carnivorous plants all over it? Um, I love it the way you put them in the heads of the babies. Those yeah. are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's yet to be best. determined, but I knew that I could. You could do something yes. in the future with that. <laughs> Bones. Yeah. So today we have a <laughs> Thanks very... Thanks for sharing, Kitty. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, trying to upcycle. Yeah, that's good. So today we have a really exciting show. We're going to be talking about Florida's rivers, wildlife, and ecosystems with author and photographer Doug Alderson. Answering your calls is Clark, and working the boards is Mr. Bill Grace. Stay tuned in as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet. Hi, y'all. Um, Doug, this is Annie. Um, Doug Alderson, and, and make sure it's Alderson, A-L-D-E-R-S-O-N. Yes, I wanted to, <laughs> hi, Doug. I wanted to, good morning. Uh, good morning. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about you. And um, it's, uh, Doug prefers a kayak to a desk. Who doesn't, right? Hugs trees and friends. I like you added that. And loves observing alligators, manatees, and other wildlife. Most of his 15 published books focus on the dynamic and quirky nature of his home state of Florida. Additionally, his articles and photographs have been featured in numerous magazines. Uh, welcome to the program, Doug. I am so glad that you are here. You know, I wanted to, before you even speak, I wanted to tell you that I ordered that uh, that book that you, the other book that you wrote about the uh, the quirky places. What's the name of that again? I can't remember. Um a new guide to old Florida attractions. Yes, new guide to old, old, Florida, old attractions. Florida attractions. I can't wait. Yes. I'm getting it tomorrow, so I'm excited. So how are and you? People, doing? when they when they look at that book, they they don't realize there's so many more these old attractions still around that you can visit. They're not just uh, part of the past. Yeah, yeah. You know, since you, since you came to our attention, it's been so fun to learn about your background and how you've helped our uh, natural Florida environment. And I heard that today's your birthday. Is that right? That's correct. Happy it's my birthday. birthday. So it's a great way to celebrate. It's our present. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. So, um, you know, when when their uh, their book uh, that we saw that's just beautiful, by the way, uh, Florida's Rivers, a celebration of over 40 of the Sunshine State's dynamic waterways, and it came out this past fall. <clears throat> what motivated you at your young age 
uh, not your age now, at your birthday age, <laughs> but your young age, uh, uh, to make nature and sustainability your lifelong focus, because I know it is. Right. Um, well, when I was a young boy, I grew up near Chicago until uh, I was 11. And um, the first uh, experience I had with water pollution uh, was when uh, my dad took uh, my brother and I to a lake. And we, we it was a wonderful lake, had slides. It was all this play equipment in the water. It was a beach. We had a blast. And the next morning, I woke up with a full body rash from head to toe. Oh, my goodness. And it lasted two or three days. And it was probably from sewage and pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just made, made me aware. The only place we could go at that time, this was in the 60s, that we could go that was had clean water was in uh, to visit relatives up in Upper Michigan. Mm. And so we had uh, relatives, and they lived near a lake, and we'd go fishing and, and swimming. And that really... Um, established my love for the outdoors. Mm -hmm. When we moved to the Tallahassee area uh, in 1968, uh, we fell in love with it because the woods and waters were just out the back door. There were springs. They were within reach. Within, you know, just 20 minutes away, we could go swimming and fishing and and canoeing. And so we fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. And um, I've been going ever since. my grandparents visited from Chicago when I was a teenager. I took them to this place called the Wasissa River. It's uh, just east of Tallahassee. And I went there yesterday because it's one of my favorite rivers. And I took a person that had never been there before. So that's what I like to do. And my grandparents talked about it for years. They just Aww. couldn't believe a place like that existed with uh, wildlife and springs and beauty and clear water. And that's the type of environment that we cannot take for granted because obviously we've had problems in Florida, but we still have some beautiful places. And that's what I wanted to celebrate in this book because mm-hmm. I've been going to these places since I was 11 and I, today I turned 65. So I'm celebrating. Hey, congratulations. Um, yeah, Big number. That era. Thank you. And so I've been going most of my life and I think it helps keep me young because when I yeah. go out in nature like that, I feel young and, um, my wife and I live south of Tallahassee. We have wooden environment. We have a very sustainable home and gardens and woods and wildlife just out our back door. And uh-huh. so it is uh, quite different than my boyhood home in Chicago in a suburb. Yeah. And um, I know everybody can't live this way, but... Wherever we live, we have to try to be sustainable, and that's what we try to do here. Well, that's a good, uh, you know, good philosophy across the board for everybody. If we think exactly. further than just our own pleasure, and you know, uh, we can do a lot better. Uh, what uh, do you think that we can do uh, to make the state of Florida rivers cleaner and safe? Well, when I give a book talk, I have these postcards I give out ways to help Florida's rivers and. It varies from from household things we can do of reducing our use of pesticides, mm. fertilizers. Um, those things end up in our aquifer, end up in our springs and our waterways. And so um, there's a certain time to fertilize your garden when things are really coming in. Right. And the plants will take it up quickly. Um, and my lawn grass does not need fertilizer. I have this uh, centipede grass, and I don't. I've never fertilized the lawn. Good job. And I have a small lawn over the septic tank area. <laughs> Yeah, but um, so I've we really reduce our fertilizer use uh, here, and I think uh, golf courses the same way. That's that's a source agriculture, uh, all that stuff. Organic farming is is probably much more compatible with uh, with the land as well as the waterways because they don't use as much of the fertilizer or the pesticides that can end up in the waterways. So that's one thing that we do is try to use organic foods. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's becoming cost effective now. I can go places and it's often the same price or just a dollar more to buy organic uh, food. Sometimes it's so even it's, cheaper at some places. Yeah. In some places it is. So it's becoming more mainstream, which is fine with yeah. me. Uh, you can find it in every store now. Yeah, it's, it's and, a uh, lot more convenient than it used to be. It used to be yes, one exactly. place in, you know, one big city kind of a thing. Right. So I, I kind of, and things, simple things like uh, our bottled water. I really, really discourage the use of bottled it's water. It's my biggest because, pet peeve on the world. Yeah. Yeah. People, uh I see people go to the springs, enjoy the springs. They bring a case of bottled uh, water. I'm like, please, there's a there's a correlation because a lot of these companies are pumping from our springs oh gosh, and closing yes. off certain springs. Yeah, so why not uh, just put the plastic that the water was in back in? Yeah, exactly. And Got so it's it. it's certainly not any better, especially if it's been sitting in a plastic bottle for any length exactly. of time. Exactly, off gassing like much, crazy, right? Much worse for you. Yeah. So it's a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. And I encourage just bringing a water bottle and. Uh, Using that, and mm-hmm. I think bottled water has a place maybe only in emergencies. Yes. And maybe at an airport when they don't let you bring in water, maybe if they don't have a place to refill your water bottle, maybe there's a you buy bottled water in the airport. They actually they actually have uh, bottles that have an internal filter. So you okay. can put the water yes. in the airport in the, the uh, bottle, and it has a filter that uh, you can, it filters out the baptist. That's what I use. So just Yeah, and they FYI. have more filling stations, yeah, it's <laughs> at airports now too. So it's, that's no excuse now for airports even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I wanted to ask you, um, there was a, something that I thought was interesting <clears throat> that you, in your book, you divided the rivers into three different categories. Can you uh, briefly share about, because uh, you could go on for days about that, I'm sure, but can you briefly yes. share with us about those three, please? Yes, I, I have three categories. One I call the mighty rivers. And these are the larger rivers in Florida. Uh, some are alluvial. That means they carry a lot of sediments. And those include the Choctahatchee and the Apalachicola in the, in the uh, Panhandle area. And, um, and then the Suwannee, very long river. It's not really that alluvial. Uh, it has a lot of springs, but it's a very long river. It emerges from the Okefenokee Swamp. Mm-hmm. We have the uh, uh, St. John's River and the Peace River down in South Florida. And I've I'm included those as the mighty rivers. The uh, swamp, swamp streams are basically these streams fed by swamps. They're usually the dark water streams. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not necessarily polluted just because they're dark. They're the tannin tinted. Yeah. Right? Right. And so the Southeast United States shares a trait with the Amazon basin as having the largest concentration of these, these swamp streams or black water streams in the world. Uh, and I like these because it's kind of a black mirror. So mm-hmm. you, the vegetation, the trees reflect on this black water. It's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other category are the swamp streams, swamp fed, I mean, the uh, spring fed streams. Spring. And these are the gorgeous, uh, clear waters that fed by, uh, big springs in Florida. And most of these, uh, in North Florida and Central Florida, not too many in South Florida. And, uh, these are the ones that are most popular with people to either canoe, kayak, or, or tube down. And so they can be a bit crowded sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they often reflect some of the problems with the pollution and so forth. The springs have a lot of algae problems right now in many parts of Florida, not every part. Um, but they are beautiful and usually have a lot of wildlife, a lot of marshy habitat. And like the Wasissa River yesterday, a lot of bird life, 
saw a black crown night heron and lots of waiting birds and and um, didn't see the otters. We were a little bit late for that. Oh, um, okay. They have a season. But, well, in the morning, usually if you're first thing in the morning, oh, I see I the see. otters. But if okay. there's quite a few people out in kayaks and canoes and stuff. And so there's they get kind of they skittish. They shy away, right? Shy away, right. Uh, but I often see otters if I'm the first one on the water early in the morning. Oh, okay. And um, alligators, turtles, uh, and some of the some of these spring-fed streams have manatees as well. They love these springs in the winter time because they are at constant temperature, and they are warmer than the Gulf waters. And so you will see a lot of manatees in many of these springs, uh, and they rely on them to survive in the winter time. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Kenny. Oh, I'm supposed to read something. I forget that every darn time. <laughs> I am Annie, and you are listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Doug Alderson, the author and photographer of numerous books, including Florida Rivers. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on the air. And, Doug, we already have a email. It's from David Bryant. He says, whenever I think of Florida rivers, I recall around 1999 or 2000 that there was a controversy over a company called Swanee American, which opened and expanded a cement mine and plant near the... And then I have to pronounce it. Itchitucky River. Thank yeah. you. Near the Itchitucky, right? Itchitucky River. Itchitucky. And uh, Governor De- Jeb Bush went on a well-publicized canoe ride when the controversy over the mine was ranging, and yet the plant was still built anyway. Uh. Fast forward to today, and I can see wrong DeSantis literally dumping still there, and he. And then I'm just going to summarize some things. And then he said, uh, indeed, destroying the environment is part of his MO to attract um, the Republicans, is what David uh, says. He says it straight so, up. <laughs> um, and I did summarize several things. Thank so, uh, Doug, what, what do you think about that river well, <laughs> or, or that well, situation? Turkey, yeah, so that was a mistake, I think, allowing that... Uh, big concrete plan. They did put in some safeguards at the time and I don't I just don't know about the follow up for the safeguards if they've done inspections and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's I don't know enough about it to comment currently on it. Uh, but they did try to set up some kind of safeguards and inspection program. So that's the thing. If you set up requirements, you need to follow up and keep inspecting. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it, we also need to have strong citizen advocacy groups around the state. We do have that. We have to have press involvement. We have to have political leaders that really care. Uh, They're not just do photo ops, but we need people that really care and are educated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes people care, but they don't really have the education. So it takes the citizens to really take them out. We used to take politicians on on canoe rides and really try to educate them and show them the resources. And some of these, uh, when I used to lobby in the 80s, that was our big junket was a Moonlight canoe ride down the St. Mark's River with with fried chicken and wine. You know, when that was our junket. You know, kindness. we spent yeah. less than $100. <laughs> and it sometimes really helped. It really made some friends that way. Uh, so you have to take people out and educate them. You can't just wait till the session, expect to get in and, and talk for an hour. It's not going to happen. You have to do that in the off season uh, the rest of the time mm-hmm. and take them out on weekends, take their families out, take them for hikes, canoe trips. Uh, 
and take them to your meetings. Mm -hmm. And and that education process takes some time for it to sink in. Mm -hmm. uh, and and to elect political leaders that care. I mean, that's that's the key. But really, you have to follow up because they get bombarded during the session by lobbyists from different corporations and big money interests. So, so you have to stay on top of it with the citizen advocates and uh, and you really they have to be strong and resist some of these temptations they have. <laughs> yeah. On line one, we have John from Tampa. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Um, Hello, John. Speaking of political leaders who care, this is John Dingfelder, former... Oh, yay, John! <laughs> How are you doing? Good. Good to hear you. Listen, um, in regard to rivers, you know, we have a big issue on the Hillsborough River that uh, the, the other city council members are going to have to decide uh, pretty soon, which is the reclaimed water proposal that the city has been working on for about 20 years and whether or not they want to take reclaimed water out of our sewage treatment plant and pump it up to above the dam, inject it into the wells near the dam, and then pump it out and uh, pump it out into the river. It's so and then, scary. And then pull it out, and you know it's 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 there's a lot of there's there's pros and cons because on the one hand we're putting a lot of bad nutrients in directly into the bay that are not good for the bay, and we've been doing that for 30, 40 years or more. Mm -hmm. um, and so this could, could, could reduce some of that. But then the flip side is, is there's a lot of unknowns in terms of injecting those huge amount of quali you know, uh, quantities and qualities of reclaimed water uh, into our system and ultimately into the Hillsborough River. So anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up as a local issue. Uh, I grew up uh, going to college at FSU and University of Florida, and I've paddled all those rivers up there in this beautiful mm -hmm. Beautiful country up there. Uh, I want to ask you, I'm going to interrupt real quick um, sure. with no permission. <laughs> but I wanted to uh, see is there something that, John, that you can recommend for us to do to uh, who to write, who to talk to, what do we need to do to, to make our feelings known about that? Well, I think the Sierra Club and, 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 Sierra the, Club. Friends of the, River, and the Friends of the River are taking a very active role in terms of monitoring and, 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 analyzing the, the science and those issues. Mm -hmm. And so probably the first thing I would do is, is reach out to those organizations uh, so we're not inventing the wheel. Right. If, 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 if and when your listeners and you make up your mind about how you feel about it after studying it, all the pros and cons, then I would write directly to the uh, city council members. Okay. Um, I think the mayor and her staff have already made up their mind about what they want to do. But at the end of the day, you know, council is going to have the final word on it. Yeah. And um, and and you can you can go online and and go write directly. You can write one letter and it'll go to all all seven council members okay. uh, at once. Thank you anyway, so much for calling in and giving us that information, John. Okay. Y'all have a good day. Thanks. You too. So, Doug, earlier you were talking about lobbying. Can you tell us how you got into that and what you accomplished? Yeah, when I when I was very young, I hiked the Appalachian Trail when I was 18, and that kind of solidified my commitment uh, to the environment uh, and wanted to protect the environment. So when I returned home, I soon became involved with the Sierra Club, and uh, and then within months, I was involved with some political issues. And I started lobbying when I was 19, which was wow. pretty much too young, <laughs> too young <laughs> to relate to a lot of those people. 
But I did that from the late 70s through the 80s um, and and the Sierra Club and other groups as well. And I, for a while, I pushed for a bottle bill, bottle deposit laws and things like that. So we were successful on a few measures, such as some of the state lands programs, getting money for buying up endangered lands. And there were some good bills to, um, to address leaking underground storage tanks and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I also want, you know, eventually I became a little burned out on just lobbying because that, that takes a lot out of you. So I started teaching summer camp for kids and outdoor camp and things like that. So I just shift gears to do more direct uh, education of young people. Now I do writing and so forth. So whatever I do is ties in with the environment. But I, what I found on certain issues, maybe this involves your local issues too. If you can get the press involved, you can get the citizens involved and you, you raise it to a pretty high level, a lot of times politicians will then listen, but you have to be on top of it and you have to sustain that effort uh, for a long time. So in Tallahassee, the Wakulla Springs, which is one of our biggest springs in the world, is just south of Tallahassee. And for a long time, scientists thought that the city spray field for sewage was polluting Wakulla Springs with excess nitrogen. But until the scientists proved it, the city commission of Tallahassee was not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. So the scientists proved it by, by injecting dyes into the spray field. And those dyes can be detected in the springs. And they, 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 about three weeks later, the dyes came up in the springs and they proved a direct connection from the spray field to what color spring. That's so great. So the city commission, then they said, prove it. And they, <laughs> it was proven. So they agreed to a $227 million sewage upgrade for Tallahassee. It took years to implement, but that reduced the nitrogen levels by more than 75%. Wow, that's a big number. It's a big number. And the levels in Wakulla Springs corresponded and they started dropping. So so that was a, a success story. And that that's because citizens uh, stayed on top of it. The press stayed on top of it. And scientists became involved with facts. And they kept staying involved and um and it worked Mm -hmm. and we had some receptive city commissioners but they were reluctant at first but when they the proof was there uh they could justify the expense to the taxpayers because they had the facts right it was in front of them them. in black and white they couldn't deny black and white yeah and so and then now the the state is supplying some grants to convert some septic tanks to the city sewage plant in the area of the Wakulla Springs watershed. And that's going to be an ongoing effort for years, mm-hmm. but the state will have some grants and they do have grants that can do that conversion. Uh, and that's the next step is converting some septic tanks to uh, the city sewer, since mm-hmm. the city sewer is much safer now. Yeah, I would <laughs> bet, bet a little bit more right. than the septic. <laughs> exactly. The septic uh, takes out pathogens that are harmful to humans, but it doesn't address nitrogen for the uh. most part, unless you get one of the expensive tanks and you have to maintain them properly to do to take out nitrogen so um so that's really the answer is i think is state grants to to uh to convert septic tanks to city sewer in mm-hmm. many places doug i'm loving how you're rattling off all these spring and river names and <laughs> i looking at your book florida's rivers it's you know, it's a it's a beautiful book, but it's also a call to action to get people to go right. out there and appreciate the rivers. And I saw that you mentioned that you were balancing your camera on a tripod, and then you also had your 
uh, like digital device to write down stuff. So I was wondering if you could share how much did you actually write on the kayak? And okay. yeah, and how yeah. did you accomplish these beautiful photographs? Well, I, I, I do gamble because I take good cameras in my kayak. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that. <laughs> and, uh, you must not tip over very often. <laughs> <laughs> I do not tip over. But I don't take them out in a big rainstorm. Uh, I do have a waterproof camera, but the quality is not quite as good. Mm. So I, I initially I had the big cameras with the big lenses, and, and it would be a pretty big dry bag on top of my kayak. It's cumbersome. Mm. Now I have one that's high quality, but it's it's small, and it has a 600-millimeter built-in zoom, so I can... I can balance that pretty easy and take some uh, very good quality photos from my kayak that's it's not as big and cumbersome. Uh, and sometimes I don't I don't record things on the kayak. I actually write physically on the kayak. I will, oh, with paper? I will, I will take a pad and paper. Uh, I will often stop. I will, I'll stop movement and I'll be in a beautiful place and I'll just start writing my uh, observations and feelings and smells and sounds. So, and some people will say, gosh, it felt like I was right there with you when I read your writing. <laughs> well, this, I was, you were kind of right there with me because I wrote it right there. It's the very part. poetic. You're yeah. very, it's a very good writer. And it, in your write, you. it did, it colored the area just perfectly. Yeah. And I thank you. And I, I try to do that. And uh, I always feel one person told me the other day that it was like reading music for oh, her. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what a, I've never had anybody say that but that was that was very sweet rhythmic and uh, it has a lot of rhythm mm -hmm. yeah and and then the back of the book it does i do uh talk about how you can kind of get involved and hopefully they'll go on my website i have a link to the different ways you can help florida's rivers kind of like this mm -hmm. postcard i give out with the steps but uh but the first step i think is to really go out and appreciate the natural world mm -hmm. to really understand it and to really enjoy it because it, without that this is just a, a mental thing. It's an intellectual thing. You might read about it, but unless you really go out and experience it, you won't have that motivation to really uh, step up and, and help the rivers and help the environment. Yeah, you need to get an attachment. Yes, yeah, so yeah. Doug, we got another email from Carla in Palm Harbor. She says, the fertilizers and pesticides that Floridians put on their lawns to have green grass as if we live in England, in my opinion, is a great problem for the state. Wouldn't we be better off to encourage other types of foliage and ground cover to get these items out of the waterways to hopefully try to alleviate problems like red tide? Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, you know, I live in the woods. I only have grass over the septic tank areas, and that's it. Um, and the rest is just natural native vegetation, and I just have trails, and it's just beautiful. And I share it with deer, and the deer will, will put fawns near the house just to... Uh, help protect the fawns and so forth. So I look out the window, I'll see a fawn laying down on the grass. It's just amazing. Uh, it's very sweet. But um, but there's there's definitely a move towards more native vegetation, mm -hmm. less grass. Native vegetation can help feed the wildlife and draws insects that birds, native birds come and feed on, berries and, and things and nuts that native wildlife use. And so... Um, there is a move towards more natives and less grass. And Doug Tallamy is a good writer, and he's, he's written about that. And if you really want to reduce the decline of bird species, every, every homeowner needs to plant more of the native foods, food um, plants that will attract butterflies, wildlife, bees, mm -hmm. uh, and really help diversify the environment uh, in our backyard. What's his name again? Uh, Doug Tallamy. Uh, 
And so he, he, maybe he could be a guest on your show. That'd well, be wonderful. Okay. Well, uh, write it down. And he's written several books and he's, he's given talks and around the country about mm -hmm. this. Uh, I, just, I wanted to say, though, uh, English gardens, uh, that is not, they don't use regular grass. It's like it's a mix of all herbs no. and different odds and ends, anything that's green. So it's not, right. it's America. Is yeah. What it is. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's, they get a lot more rain. If you've ever been to England, if, yeah, if you soft. don't like the weather, the, the joke is you change, you wait 15 minutes and it, it changes. Yeah, it's <laughs> misty, moist. A lot more rain and and, uh, and so it's more lush yeah. in, in the summer and so forth. Yeah. And so it's different. And yeah. there's something called Florida-friendly landscaping. And um, that's <laughs> that ties in with what I'm talking about. It's more the natives yeah. and uh, less grass. And you can look that up that term Florida-friendly yeah. landscaping, and you could find out more information. We're a big promoter of that, for and, sure. Yeah, and exactly. in a couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, some master gardeners talk about it as well. Oh, we just got perfect. another text message from Doug in Clearwater. He says, great show. Please say the name of the book again. I have two kayaks that have a lot of dust on them. <laughs> so I will reintroduce our guest. I am Kenny Coogan, and you are listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Doug Alderson, the author and photographer of numerous books, including Florida's Rivers, a celebration of over 40 of the Sunshine State's dynamic waterways. If you want to share your favorite river or be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. Um, I wanted to also just say, if you go to your website, which is D-O-U-G, that's Doug Alderson, which is spelled A-L-D-E-R-S-O-N dot net, all of the books listed are on there because he's written over 15, right, Doug? Is that right? Right, 15. Yeah. So right. you can go on there and check it out because I actually personally ordered a couple of them uh, online from a good, a good bookstore. <laughs> yeah. Not just the, the random Amazon thing. So, yeah. uh, so anyway, you can get that. You know, I wanted to. Uh, I had a question about what water means to you. That's in, it's your church, but you know, you sort of really told us about that already. So, but you can elaborate. Um, but I wanted to ask you in researching for the book, what body of water surprised you the mo most, and what do you think is the most underrated as well? Um, that's a good, good question. Um, I think the, the, the rivers that people don't, do not use as much are the Blackwater rivers, the, uh, the swamp fed streams. Uh -huh. And I find them really beautiful. They are sometimes swampy and, and wild. And like I said, the black mirror, but because they're not clear, people think, Oh, I don't want to go on that. Mm -hmm. But I just, and there's so many of them. I just love them. Uh, the Apalachicola River, I just finished a two-year job with the Apalachicola River Keeper, and I um, I did a trail guide for the website there, and um, there's 400 miles of streams along the Apalachicola River. They either feed into the main river or they go out from the main river. That's 400 miles just in that basin that you can explore. They're mostly blackwater rivers, blackwater mm -hmm. creeks, but it was just amazing. The canopy of cypress trees and tupelo trees and the reflection of this beautiful canopy. And then when the tupelo trees are blooming and the bees are in them and they, you know, they make the tupelo honey from that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just, just really pretty. And so you never see anybody out there hardly. It's just, 
Oh, it's not like the, the uh, Rainbow they're afraid, River. They're afraid that they can't see in, that there's, they don't Yeah, they're under afraid of snakes or alligators. And, right. Yeah, dark water. But those are the underrated streams we have. We yeah. have numerous ones. And there's, there's many numerous creeks and streams, too. They're not the main rivers that, that branch off of these main rivers that are really neat to explore. It would take me a couple lifetimes to explore all of them. And so that's what's neat about Florida. It is a land of water. Mm-hmm. It's, it's water with some land in between because <laughs> there's so much water in Florida. <laughs> That's a good way of saying it. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to to mention, because you you're too humble to mention this, that you won the 2015 inaugural Environmental Service Award by Paddle Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was uh, in direct relationship to the paddling trail systems that you established that you were just talking about. You want to talk about that a little bit? Your The systems or any about okay. that? Okay. Um, Yes, thank you. In uh, 2005, uh, the state of Florida hired me to map a sea kayak trail around the state. So that's a coastal trail. But then when that was finished, um, they asked me to coordinate um, the paddling trails in the state. So there's there's now over 60 uh, state-designated paddling trails in the state. Mm-hmm. And so I was in charge of keeping those updated, the guides updated, and to provide maps and guides on a website for free. And they're available for everybody on um the Office of Greenways and Trails website. What's it called? And, uh, it's the Florida Office of Greenways and Trails, the state-designated paddling trails. So you can find out launch information. Uh, there's often links to outfitters, uh, mileage information, uh, difficulty information for around the state. They're, they're covering oh, so trails they rate all it uh, on difficulty. That's a good idea. Yeah. And, of course, difficulty varies depending on weather and wind. Sure. <laughs> and sure. water levels. Yeah. Uh, as well. So that would be but a seasonal situation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's there's something available in all parts of the state. And I did that for uh, probably between the circumnavigational saltwater paddling trail and the state trails. I did that for 15 and a half years. Wow. And I'll be working a part time in my semi retirement uh, <laughs> starting tomorrow doing oh. some of the same work uh, for the state. Uh, so I'll be working three days a week and then I'll be riding and kayaking the rest of the time. So <laughs> <laughs> and gardening. I like to garden as well. Yeah. Well, uh, it's all ties together, really. It all ties you know, when together. You, when you get down to it, one thing leads yeah. to the next when you're all in, up in the environment. I need to do our reintroduction again, please, Doug. Um, and I am Annie, and you are listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF, Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Doug Alderson, the author and photographer of numerous books, including Florida Rivers, Florida's Rivers. If you want to be a part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at uh, dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on the air. And we just got an email. Good. From Nervous Northerner. <laughs> oh, this is like a Dear Abby thing. Yes. <laughs> dear Abby, Dear and, Abby. And they <laughs> write about alligators. That'd be my guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you want to just answer the question before I no, read it? Go ahead and read it first. Uh, it says, please comment on kayaking with gators. Uh, I'm, an ex- <laughs> I'm an experienced kayaker from Michigan, nervous to kayak with gators. Yeah. So yes. that, that, was, that was their statement well, or question. That's cute. So whenever, do we need to be I nervous? Give talks, yeah, whenever I've given talks out of the area, out of state, and I gave a talk in, uh, to an international sea kayak symposium in Washington State, the number one question is always, what about the alligators? They're so afraid of them, yeah. Yeah, and so 
my response to anybody in the cold northern waters is that it's, there's much higher risk to tipping over in the cold northern waters and getting hypothermia and dying than there are if alligators attacking you down yeah. here. Um, and that's true. It is true. I've been around um, hundreds of alligators. I have a healthy respect for them. I give them a birth if I see them. But they've never attacked me, never been aggressive. Um, yesterday, I ran over one accidentally, or just startled one but you it mean just in your kayak in my kayak uh-huh. yes uh but it just just splashed and went and dove you know when they get startled they dive right. they dive deep they feel safer in the deeper water and they often go to the bottoms so you'll see the bubbles going down to the bottom of the river and and so you just once you know that you realize they're not trying to come up and grab you Right. Um, so as long as you stay in the kayak, uh, then yes. you're pretty safe. <laughs> Don't just and, go out there swimming, chasing bubbles. <laughs> yeah. And and also, I, I advise people, if they're nervous by gators, stay more in the central channel of the river, right. not right along the bank, because that's along the bank is where most of the gators would be sunning. Mm-hmm. And so if you startle them, they might splash and dive underneath your kayak and you'll be startled. And so I've done that, you know, I've been all over the state. And so the Hillsboro River in your area has lots of gators. And so they're pretty used to people. Most of them will just stay in the log if you're quiet and, and slide by them. But some rivers, they, they splash and go under underwater. And um, there's no need to be afraid, but just give them a wide berth along the so bank. just keep that pork chop off your neck. <laughs> yeah. And I advise people not bringing up dogs, you know. Ah, uh, that's they're, a good idea. Yeah. They're geared more towards four-legged animals mm-hmm. you know they've been around since they all live the dinosaurs yeah and so their their brain is programmed for four-legged animals so when they see a dog they click in that's food mm-hmm. two-legged people are not food to them um, so if you have a dog sitting perched on top of your kayak that might attract gators more than people that's a so very be good careful point. with dogs around the water yeah uh, we got a, another message, and they said that if you go to Wikiwachi, you can get up close to the manatees. And then they're asking for confirmation from you, Doug. Um, well, there's lots of rivers that have manatees. Um, you just have to bear, bear in mind, uh, unlike maybe what you've read, you cannot touch them, you cannot um, harass them, you cannot follow them, like stalk them. <laughs> Sometimes they'll be curious and come up to you, and so you just sit quietly and uh, don't uh, resist the urge of petting them. People think they should pet them, but that's really against the law. So oh, you have to just kind of just quietly watch them. And uh, I often watch them and they'll sometimes back off a little bit. Uh, but it's fun to see manatees, of course. Uh, but you can't, I've seen people chase them around in their oh. kayaks and stuff. And that's, that's against the law. Yes. And, uh, it's not good for the animal. No, that's going to make them it, nervous. Yes. Anything that makes animals nervous uh, like that and changes their habits, their feeding habits, is not good for the animal. No. stresses them out. It does. So uh, this is you, we, the yeah. idea of it just stresses me out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the week watch is a place you can see manatees. You can see them on a little boat tour they have, too. They have a free boat tour you can take once you get in the park. And sometimes you see them in the, the actual spring bowl during the shows. They'll show up. <laughs> That's always fun. Since this, this, since this is the Sustainable Living Show, I wanted to ask about the intentional neighborhood that you yeah. live in because okay. that just streams that. sustainability to me. So yeah. can you? So I know that you, it's south of Tallahassee. You've been there for about 35 years. And what mm-hmm. does an intentional 
intentional neighborhood consist of? What does that mean? Yeah, so um, we wanted to move to the country, to the land, but it's it's great when you can move with friends, uh, and that's what we did. You so picked people your neighbors. Bought, yes, know your neighbors ahead of time, um, and that's exactly what we did. So within a five-year period, most of us bought up the land in a, in a chunk adjacent to each other, and most of us have uh, probably about five acres each, and um, we knew each other beforehand. Uh, we don't have a central, like a central community or a central land here, but we have trails linking our lands, hiking trails. We don't have fences up and we have uh, lots of gardens. So we share lots of uh, vegetables and fruits and seeds. Uh, we do organic farming. We get together with potlucks, especially we're starting up that again a little bit with COVID. Yeah. We kind of, you know, it was tough. Sure. And now we're starting up that. And sometimes we get in the evenings, we just play cards or something, or games. And that's always fun. Uh, and we, we go on kayak trips together. All the people really seem to like the outdoors and hikes and kayaks. So it's great to have friends to go out with. And so it's convenient to have your neighbors. You can carpool places. And um, well, and if somebody good. needs a ride, their, their vehicle's broken down, you have a neighbor you can call and they can you get a ride. So yeah. it's very, a broad very family. good. That. You have a broad family yeah. there. Yeah, and they're, they're, people are like family because you've yeah. known them for at least 35 or 40 years. Are you familiar with any other intentional neighborhoods in the state? Or is this just your own doing? This is just a a group that got together. No no one person uh, thought of it. They just said, hey, this would be great to kind of do this. And the land opened up. It was very inexpensive at the time. Uh, Lucky you. Better in Florida. That was amazing. So (laughs) the land was like $2,000 an acre. It was very cheap then. Uh, and we built our, we shared, we also had work parties helping each other build houses. So I have a passive solar house that we had work parties and neighbors helped me build it. Oh, it was like I a barn raising. Barn raising, exactly. Yeah. We did that with several houses. And uh, a lot of people were uh, very good carpenters. So that really helped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want a bad <laughs> carpenter on a barn raising. Yeah. You want to, <laughs> work parties, you want to have a couple people that can direct no traffic. Doing, and kinda, right. Yeah. <laughs> Get us and, a, uh, our special contractor here, please. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of these, uh, some of the neighbors were, they made their living doing carpentry. Oh. So they didn't mind sharing their efforts. And so that was great. And that's how I learned doing these work parties, uh, learned carpentry and plumbing and electricity, electrical work and all that stuff. So, And so when when I have a electrical problem, I'm, if I'm not up to it, I just call my friend Lee up and he was, he was an electrical engineer in the Navy. He just pop over and he can just fix whatever he knows exactly what to do it's perfect so that's that's what communities are all about really it's people helping people and um and also be living compatibly on land and i think we all share a healthy respect for all life and that's really the key i think to Mm -hmm. sustainability is just respecting life and um uh you know i i follow native american traditions and i give an offering of tobacco for even mowing the lawn, just anything I take from nature, I try to give a prayer and offering. That's just my way, but that's what I was taught. And um, to me, that that it shows a respect. Doesn't mean you can't use things, but just means you you don't take everything. Never take everything, and you just take what's compatible. Um, so <clears throat> we all try to do that. Can you tell us how you're involved with the uh, Muscogee Creek Indian Tribe? I love this. Sure. Um, well, growing up, I had, you know, I have a little bit of Iroquois heritage from way back, but, uh, when I came in this area, when I was 11, you kind of have to grow where you're planted. Um, uh, 
when I became, when I was about 20 or 21, there was a visiting native spiritual leader named Bearheart, Marcellus Williams from Oklahoma. He was Muskogee. And he gave some talks and everything. And I went to a couple of talks and got to know him a little bit. And then he invited me to Oklahoma. So I went on a couple of occasions and he eventually moved to Mexico. But he adopted me as his nephew when I was about 21 or so. And so that is a traditional teaching relationship in the native uh, tradition. Uh, the uncles teach the uh, their nephews more than the fathers teaches the sons. Oh, I didn't know that. The, the aunts teach the, uh, the uh, nieces more than the mothers teach their daughters, certain things, especially spiritual things. And so, um, and so, you know, he taught me a lot of things, native traditions and so forth, and also just helped me learn more about myself mm -hmm. and what I could be doing to help people and help the environment. And um, so eventually uh, I became involved with a local Creek Indian descendants that had a ceremonial grounds in Bluntstown, a panhandle town. And I've been going out there for 39 years or so. So become one of the leaders out there. And we, we have uh, ceremonies four times a year, and we have a couple social gatherings at other times. It's just a wonderful group of people. And again, another community that really helps each other out, that shares similar ways and beliefs. And um, there's people that travel from all over, but there's also folks that live in the area. That oh, well, out, so. I wanted to ask you before you stray from this, uh, are those ceremonies yeah. open to other people, or is it just the cluster of people that you know that are in the spiritual seeking? They are open when people um, seek it out and they get to know a member. So it's oh, not okay. like so a powwow. You have to be it's invited. It's not advertised. Kind of a thing. Yeah. Okay. You have to be invited. Okay. And so someone needs to have that special interest and uh, it feels right and you invite okay. them out. But it's okay. it's not like a church where you're trying to proselytize and get converts. It's it's very different. You have to kind of seek it out and, and really want to come out. Mm -hmm. And um, I also do... Uh, Sweat lodge ceremonies. I was taught that by a couple of traditional leaders, and so that is more of my own home, and that's the purification of mind, body, and spirit. It's kind of like a sauna, basically, mm -hmm. but with more prayer involved, and uh, that helps keep me, I think, uh, uh, clear. I guess would be a good term, right? And uh, think about other people because you know when you get to me in the '60s, a lot of your friends or relatives have uh, physical problems, and so you pray for them. It's a good way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody mentioned in the previous show about tobacco. He mentioned, you know, tobacco should only be used ceremonial. And that's, I agree with that 100%. So well, I only use tobacco during ceremonies, not other times. So tobacco is something to be respected, not to be addicted to. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's a sacred sacred uh, herb. And, um, and it's obviously misused on a massive scale. Can you tell us what was the Walk for the Earth? Yeah, so so I, I became involved with the Native American people, and it just kind of came to me walking one day in Tallahassee that uh, I wanted to coordinate. I wanted to walk across the United States. It just came to me. I'd, I'd hike the Appalachian Trail, but instead of going alone, I wanted to see if other people wanted to go. And this was uh, it came to me in 1983. And so... I wrote down when I thought this walk should start, where it should begin. It just kind of, it was an epiphany. It really came suddenly, and it was very clear. It was going to start uh, Point Reyes Seashore, California. Never been there. <laughs> That's the spot oh, we wow. started. And we were going to weave in and out of Native American reservations through the country and end in Washington, D.C. seven months later, 3,800 miles later. 
So I had about a year to organize it. And this is before the internet. No email, no way to look up things easily, and no cell phones. And so uh, it was just all putting out newsletter information like announcements and magazines, and then answering a lot of mail every day, telephone calls. And pretty soon we had a core group of about 30 or 35 people that, that uh, joined us from all around the country, most people I didn't know. And we became a walking community. And um, the walk was for the environment, for Native American rights, and for peace, and to really key on the intersection of all three of those things. And a lot of the intersection was involving uranium mining on the Native American reservations, like the Navajo Reservation and so forth, and the effects on the environment and the people. So that, that definitely tied in with all three of the things we were promoting. So it was a very moving experience, obviously, for myself, as well as all the core group. And we, we often stay in touch. We, we're now we're doing Zoom meetings, but we have been, we were gathering about every two or three years in some place in the country. And we'd often go hiking and just, you know, just reconnect. That's wonderful. And so, yeah, it's just a wonderful way to uh, stay in touch with people and get to know people from all over the country. Like minds. Like mine. The next year we went to Europe. So now we stay in touch with certain people in Europe that we connected with in 1985. So the walk was in 1984, and the Europe walk was 1985. And um, so I haven't done too many big walks since then. We did a southeastern walk in 1986 uh, to honor those who suffered on the Trail of Tears. And um, then my wife and I have had a baby, and we kind of <laughs> shortened our trips after that and to raise a family and be more responsible that way. But I'm really glad I did that because it's one of the – one of the highlights of my life at that time. Yeah, it sounds like it. Earlier you were mentioning a respect for life and we do have another, uh, we have a text message from Patrice. They say, is there something to plant to replace grass that could reduce fire ants or other biting insects (laughs) so that spending time in my garden can be less painful? And I don't know if, Doug, you have something. I have a idea. Do you really? But Doug, do you have any suggestions? Um. I'm trying to think of what I plant to reduce. I know the wax myrtle plant, it's a native native shrub that actually is a traditional method to repel ticks and, and um, fleas, and it probably would help with fire ants. Oh. But it, but I don't know of that many plants you can plant right on a fire ant pile. Yeah. But, uh, well, they'll just um, move is what they do. They'll just move. Yeah. Um, for ant problems, sometimes we put grits in the pile. No. That will do it. Um, Things no, like that. That's an old wives' tale. <laughs> yeah, you know we try different things. Even just it's cruel, but boiling water, things like that. Yeah, yeah. boiling water. But we don't use uh, the pesticides and stuff. Good for you. But we don't have much of an ant problem at the moment. Yeah, I was thinking that I have an acre and most of it's twelve inches of mulch and heavily uh, landscaped or permaculture rather. And the fire ants really like undisturbed areas, mm-hmm. like a mm. sandy. A little bit of grass, like parking lot. Yeah, right. it's easier for them mm. to make mm. their house. So I would recommend, you know, rather than replacing the, well, not replacing grass with other types of grass, but just having different, just having a whole ecosystem of grants and mm. trees and shrubs and shade. And yeah, you, I, you don't mm-hmm. have to continually disturb it. But once you have different levels and, you know, they really like hot, sunny Right. Undisturbed areas. I think what you just said is it. It's like if you uh, create an environment that um, is 
you know, not conducive to them, uh, mm-hmm. and it's conducive to other growth. It makes it mm-hmm. more even. When it's just one type of, uh, of like you said, the sandy area, that's really mm-hmm. easy for them to make their, their holes and their houses. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you don't have that, like, I don't have ants. Really, in my house, hardly ever, except where they might uh, dig in um, a little panel of cement driveway that I have. It's the only place they dig. So I would suggest, you know, of course, getting away from grass and using all types of uh, frog Mm -hmm. fruit, uh, perennial Mm -hmm. peanut, mimosa, all these different odds and ends that you can use, but making a thick mulch, and that'll do it. And I think Mm -hmm. we're getting close to the end here, aren't we? Yeah, so, Doug, we only have about a minute, and... I know it's your birthday. Happy birthday! And, Happy birthday! And, and tomorrow you're starting your mini retirement, semi retirement. So, what can you just remind us? What does retiring look for, look like for you? I'll be working part time on helping to coordinate paddling trails and maybe other types of trails. Which other types of trails, like bike trails and so forth, they help reduce our transportation cost and pollution because we can get around safely by bicycle or walking easier. Uh-huh. So that'll be one of my missions. Uh, and I'll be doing more writing and kayaking and hiking, just getting outdoors, doing more of what I've been doing most of my life and having a little more freedom. And I like to take people out there. So I'll be volunteering my time to take oh, people before, on trips. Before yeah. we go, I know that you do that. You have uh, a whole bunch of people that you set up uh, tours and hiking stuff, but we only have like seconds to yeah. go. So can you just tell yeah. listeners where they can learn more? Well, a lot of times... Uh, the Apalachicola Riverkeeper, my area, a lot of these water groups have trips that they lead. Yeah. And so I help with the local Apalachicola Riverkeeper, but there's waterkeeper groups around the state that often lead outings. There's also clubs. There's conservation groups. They have outings as well. So water Florida Trail Association. Okay. Waterkeeper Alliance. Yeah. And if people uh, are interested in your book, they can go to DougAlderson.net. Yes. All right. Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much. Yay, Doug. Thank you. Good talking with you. (laughs) You too. Thank you. All right. If you would like to support our show, you can go to WMNF.org and click on the tip jar at the top of the screen. Be sure to direct your donation to SUL Sustainable Living. If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please consider going to WMNF.org, donating through uh, the tip jar, like I just said, and your donation. <laughs> I, <make> sure <laughs> I was just so excited about it. Your donation keeps us on the air. Yeah. Stick around for the next hour to hear WMNF Tampa's Monday Music with Flea. If you want to hear more public interest programming, you can switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, the source to listen to today's Tom Hartman show live. Tune in next Monday morning at eleven for the next Sustainable Living show, where we will be talking. With. To Jim Kowalowski, I'm so excited. Yes, and he's all about market gardening yes. and growing food in Central oh, Florida. So good. Follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WMNF, to stay in the loop. We've posted a bunch of events. And I am Kenny Coogan. And I am Annie Ellis. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye, Bye. y'all.